Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. It's a hot summer day, and I'm sitting on my back porch listening to the squeals of my kids, ages seven and three, as they run through the sprinkler. My mind can't help but wander to a fundamental thought. What kind of society are we leaving them? What will they think of our democracy when they become voters? The words and writing of Joshua Douglas, a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law who teaches and researches election law, civil procedure, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making. His most recent scholarship, the book we'll discuss with him today, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. It's a book that focuses on the constitutional right to vote with an emphasis on state constitutions as well as the various laws, rules, and judicial decisions impacting elections and uh, the administration of those elections. Dr. Douglas, uh, tell me about the book and what the book is not. Sure, and thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, So the book is a book of stories of everyday Americans who are working to fix our democracy. You know, there's so much doom and gloom out there when we talk about voting rights. And when I, you know, mention that I study voting rights to people, they often think about the doom and gloom aspect, how voter suppression has taken over, how it's harder to participate, how it seems that our process is just unfair. And so there's a lot of this discussion about all those problems, and and those certainly exist. But I thought I'd take a different tact and look at the good news in voting rights. And, you know, often when I tell people I wrote a a book that's positive about the right to vote, they think it's just a page long. (laughs) And, you know, it's not, because actually what I found is that there's a lot of good news out there on people who are working to fix our democracy from the ground up, local stories everyday Americans who are working to improve our process. And so I thought I'd tell their stories. And that's really what the book is all about. Before I ask you to begin with a story about West Powell, I want to ask you, what gives you the optimism that you exude uh, about the subject of your book? I think it's because you know, our democracy is so special and there are these amazing people working to fix it. And that's been part of our history for generations, right? You know, we started with white male property owners uh, being the only ones allowed to vote and we've become ever and ever more inclusive and we certainly can do better. But America's history has been one of optimism when it comes to voting rights, in addition to the, the setbacks, in addition to the voter suppression. It's been this push and pull um, between the suppression and expansion of the right to vote. And I think we need to focus on that expansion, especially in this day and age where people very much are really depressed about our, our politics. West Powell is quoted uh, at the beginning of your uh, book on voting. He said, it gives me a voice. Tell me about West Powell. Yeah, so about 25 years ago, West, who's from Kentucky, from Covington, um, made a dumb mistake. He broke into an auto salvage yard and stole a car radio. Uh, He was caught. He was convicted of theft. He um, ended up spending time in jail. He first got probation, actually, but he violated his probation because uh, his curfew was 10 p.m., and the only job he could get made him work until 11, and his parole officer caught him. So he spent about 11 months in jail. 
And he got out and he said, you know, what are you doing with myself? I'm not a criminal. I'm not a crook. This isn't the path I want to take. And so he decided to clean up his life. Um, he uh, met a woman and got married. He had five kids, uh, four girls and a boy. He said he always wanted a boy, but the girls came first. What are you going to do? And uh, he tried to get a job, had a hard time given his felony conviction. So he ended up opening his own computer repair shop and very successful. And so he really cleaned up his life and put himself back together. And yet he couldn't do that most fundamental thing in our democracy, which is vote. And he, as he told me, you know, I just didn't feel like I was really a fully a part of our society because of this. So fast forward 25 years, he's been living a successful life. Uh, and he goes to testify to the Kentucky Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, for many years, the Kentucky legislature had considered a bill to allow some low-level felons to get an expungement of their records, that is, to get it wiped off the records, and it had never gone anywhere. And who would think that a couple years ago would make any difference? Well, Wes Powell told his story. He spoke for about four and a half minutes, kind of soft-spoken, and he said, you know, I'm West, and here's the mistake I made. I was a dumb kid, and I made a dumb mistake. I think I've paid for that four times over. What more can you expect of me? And in the room that day was Senator Whitney Westerfield, a kind of pro-law enforcement Republican, law and order guy who said that he was opposed to expungement. Uh, to you know, He said, they're criminals. Why should they get any leniency? And then he said he listened to West Powell's testimony, and something clicked that day. He said he could finally put a face to the name, and he changed his mind on the spot. He, in, in fact, was texting his fellow Republican legislators during the hearing and saying, you know, we're going to get this done, not only for this guy, but for so many others. And so they did. They passed a bipartisan bill to allow some low-level felons to get an expungement of their record. So Kentucky, which has the worst felon disenfranchisement law in the country, it takes away the right to vote for life for felons, made it all a little bit better because West Powell was willing to speak up and Whitney Westerfield was willing to listen. And to me, the best part of the story is that West Powell did get his right to vote back, and he hasn't missed an election since. So let's uh, stay with uh, felony voting rights. And if you will, give me the examples of, um, of the spectrum. Uh, maybe the most, if it's fair to call uh, it the most liberal or the most progressive, uh, or the state uh, who grants felons, uh, or maybe if they've taken all of their record away. And uh, so uh, down to what, what used to be Kentucky, and there were only two states, right? Kentucky yes, Kentucky and, and Iowa now. And Iowa, and, and Iowa is still not doing anything at all? Well, its governor has indicated that um, she's uh, open to uh, easing mm-hmm. its law. Um, so we'll see what happens there. Um, and there's definitely a movement here in Kentucky to ease its law. But we're now down to those two states that, in my view, are I call them the worst because they disenfranchise felons for life. Why did Kentucky pass a law but uh, made it rather restrictive? Well, you know, I think the history of felon disenfranchisement law goes back to Jim Crow era efforts to take away the right to vote to newly freed slaves. And Kentucky's history is consistent with that all around the country. As you know, there are different variations. So in Maine and Vermont, those incarcerated currently in jail can vote using absentee ballots. Uh, and that goes all the way to the spectrum of Kentucky and Iowa that disenfranchise felons for life with very little ability to have the right to vote back. Although, as I mentioned, Kentucky made its law just a little bit better, uh, thanks to someone like West Powell. And then in in between, you have states that um, give the right to vote back right after someone leaves prison uh, or after someone finishes their parole. uh, And so there's variations all along there. 
Who would, uh, in, in your estimation, be the model state for felony voting rights? That's a hard question, of course, because it does come down to different policy preferences. So, you know, Maine and Vermont, people think that prisoner voting there is perfectly fine. And, you know, democracy doesn't seem to be broken in those two states, even though they allow prisoners to vote from jail. Um, Others think that that's horrible, um, that, you know, you've committed a crime and you violated the social contract and you shouldn't be allowed to vote. You know, I, I question what the link is between committing a crime and serving your punishment, which is separate from being having the right to vote taken away. I mean, when you get your punishment, it doesn't also come with and you lose your right to vote. That's a separate aspect. And in fact, the courts have said that's not cruel and unusual punishment or a second punishment. It's uh, more of an administrative aspect. Um, So, you know, I think there are good arguments for that. I certainly think that even if we're going to talk about making sure that are not allowing prisoners to vote that once you get out of prison uh, you should get your right to vote back you know if, if voting is the most fundamental aspect of our democracy it's the most fundamental aspect of citizenship um, why should that be taken away we don't strip you of your citizenship when you go to jail uh, so it's you know I question why we take away that most fundamental aspect of your citizenship has this issue been um, uh discussed beyond, I'm just going to guess that uh, in Kentucky and and maybe in the nation for the last uh, decade or more, it's been something that that has been discussed and not until just recently uh, were those laws looked at a bit and and changed, as you said. Um, Is this a, you take it all the way back and if we know history uh, to the Jim Crow era and and, uh, so many of the um, oppressive moves by uh, by the uh, the white patriarch. Uh, so, ha- when did this issue really become something that people were passionate about? That they started working on? That you developed your your thoughts uh, about it? Is it something that just recently come about, or should we have been talking about this, or did we talk about it in Kentucky in the in the fifties, for example? Yeah, I think we have been talking about this issue for a long time, although, as you note, there's been a lot more successes in easing the law over the past several years. Um, you know, there have been lawsuits filed for decades uh, challenging different aspects of felon disenfranchisement. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court essentially upheld or at least rejected the challenge to a felony disenfranchisement law in the mid-1970s. There have been challenges under the Federal Voting Rights Act um, that have not been successful, but the courts have been split on what the vote was uh, at the appellate court level. Um, And so I think, you know, maybe what we're seeing is the people themselves taking charge, whether it's through a ballot initiative like we saw in Florida last year, uh, or, uh, you know, people trying to convince legislatures to change the laws because the courts are not amenable to the arguments that these laws violate either the Constitution or the Voting Rights Act. One thing I think that's interesting about the current time period, though, is that there does seem to be bipartisan support for the idea that maybe a lot of these laws are way too strict. Uh, They certainly have a disproportionate effect on racial minorities still to this day. So, you know, we talked about the origin in Jim Crow, but there are lingering effects and the numbers are really staggering in terms of the number of minority voters who are affected by felon disenfranchisement laws as compared to non-minorities. 
and but we see we're seeing a lot of successes i think around the country uh, especially with ballot initiatives or with convincing legislators and that is is in some ways a new phenomenon does the constitution require that it be a state's rights uh, issue uh, or can uh, would there be some way that congress could do something uh, by and large, it's a, that's a complicated question, actually, because it requires some interpretation between two different clauses of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, but most likely, the courts would say that it's a state's rights issue, um, that Congress could not go and say, uh, you must enfranchise all, uh, all former felons or returning citizens. Um, what will it do? What, what's the impact on uh, democracy, just to, to uh, ask that uh, question? And... In Kentucky, what, what, what if we had a uh, a law that mirrored uh, some of the uh, n- not the f- the far uh, progressive uh, of Vermont, but you know somewhere in the middle, uh, let's say, H- how could it impact um, voting, uh, democracy? Uh, um, rights uh, in our own state? I think it could only be a positive. Um, You know, anytime you include more people in our democracy, then I think that's a good thing. You know, Alexis de Tocqueville once said that democracy is only legitimate based on the consent of the governed. And so shouldn't we have the consent of all of the governed? You know, and we can talk about citizenship and that should be a line, of course, uh, because that's who is legitimately part of who is the governed. Although, you know, I think there are actually arguments in some places do allow non-citizens to vote in certain elections. Um, but even if we don't go there, I think, you know, enfranchising more eligible, valid voters can only be a good thing. You know, you didn't ask me what the effect would be on politics or partisanship, uh, but a lot of people say, well, you know, this is going to help one side or the other. And my view is I don't really care. You know, this isn't about, and nothing I talk about in the book is about helping one political party or the other political party. It's about helping democracy. And I want to see higher turnout. I want to see more people participating. And I think anything we can do to ease the barriers and to bring more people into the democratic process, the stronger our democracy will be. Why is voter turnout so low? I think there's a combination of reasons, and and you're right that the numbers are woefully low. You know, in the 2016 presidential election, we had about 60% turnout. Um, In the 2018 midterms, we had 50%, which was a record for decades, and people were celebrating. And wasn't the 2019 uh, primary in Kentucky uh, 15%? Yeah, it was about that. (laughs) And, And in 2015, the last gubernatorial election, it was 31%, right? So, you know, we're having this woefully low turnout, I think there's a combination of reasons. You know, one, there's this feeling of apathy among the electorate that my vote won't matter, it won't make a difference, um, the system is rigged. Uh, I think there's a feeling that uh, there are a lot of structural barriers to the ballot box. You know, uh, rules like you have to be registered 30 days before election day cut a lot of people out of the process. And when we look at states with the higher turnout, you see that they have things like same-day registration or automatic voter registration uh, or universal vote by mail where every uh, voter is automatically mailed a ballot to fill out at home. Uh, these things actually work to improve turnout. And when you have Kentucky, which has uh, an excuse required to get an absentee ballot before Election Day, only 12 hours of voting with no early voting period, a 30-day voter registration, uh, I think off-year elections, these odd-numbered election years, also lead to low turnout. A combination of both this voter apathy and these structural barriers lead you to the kind of democracy we have today, which is not one that I think people should necessarily 
uh, strive for when it comes to our voter turnout levels. And and aren't those things likely to stay in place because of the recent uh, uh, news and testimony? And uh, you, you mentioned it in your book, uh, uh, Hackers and the Russian Influence. And, you know, I just found this, uh, this piece yesterday uh, from the Washington Post. Hackers were told to break into U.S. voting machines. They didn't have much trouble. Uh, this was a, a conference called DEFCON. Uh, did you see this piece? Uh, uh, and I'll hand it to you. But uh, Ron Wyden, uh, the uh, Congress um, person, um, was there, and, and he wasn't identified and, uh, until he made this statement. Uh, and he said, after observing this, uh, we need paper ballots, guys. Um, so I have recently heard an NPR story, too, about returning to be sure that we had paper ballots uh, that, that, that electronically. So that's another voter suppression, is it not, that people are in fear of their vote or something happening when they're in the machine? Or if we did have Internet voting, it would be... Um, absconded with and, and all of that? You know, I'm not sure what the literature says in terms of the link between having electronic-only voting machines and people not showing up or people, uh, you know, suppressing the vote in, in any way. But I will say that we definitely need to have a system of paper ballots. And in Kentucky, not all of the counties have paper ballots. In fact, my, vote, my own voting machine here in Fayette County is electronic-only without a paper backup. Um, Universal vote by mail, also known as vote at home, which is used in a handful of states, um, uh, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Utah, um, where every voter is automatically mailed a ballot without being without having it requested, without even having to, you know, it's not like absentee balloting because you don't have to make a request for it. It just comes to you. Um, makes a lot of sense for a number of reasons, including the paper ballot backup or in it's entirely a paper system. You know, and many people say, uh, well, you know, we do everything online or, you know, we, we bank online and, you know, maybe sometime in the future our systems can be secure enough you know people tell me talk to me about blockchain and say that's the wave of the future tell you know, us uh, what that is i, I read that and uh, i'm as confused as most people i think about it yeah well actually blockchain. I, I don't really know much about blockchain either um in my understanding it's it's kind of an online system using ledgers that are publicly available so everyone can access it such that no one can hack it um, and it, actually, the, the, the technology was used in a couple of elections in West Virginia uh, for a couple counties allowed um, overseas and military voters to vote via an app on their phones. And this blockchain was kind of the underlying technology. Again, I don't know enough about it to, to speak to whether um, uh, it is actually the, the way that we'll be able to vote in 20, 30 years. Uh, my friends who are, uh, some of my friends who are really into technology think it is uh, the wave of the future. But currently, especially given the problems and concerns of Russia hacking, et cetera, uh, we need paper backups. By the way, the other thing to note, though, is that, you know, what the evidence we have is that Russia did hack into voter registration lists, um, not necessarily into machines. And even if they did uh, hack into machines, the machines are not connected to the Internet or to the uh, or at least most of them are not, I should say. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's no evidence that yeah. that Russia changed vote totals in the 2016 election. Are you uh, concerned that. Uh, Congress has been um, lackadaisical uh, about investigating 
Russia for next year, uh, or for any year for that matter, but, but especially 2020, and that the president seems reluctant to really be engaged. Well, yeah, I'm concerned that we have not done enough to secure our election infrastructure, uh, to move to more of a paper backup system. But I'm also concerned about uh, Congress's failure to move forward with positive voting rights reforms. You know, the House passed H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which has a number of pro-democracy reforms, and they're not partisan. Uh, they're, they're, there's you know, really zero evidence of a partisan effect as opposed to a democracy effect uh, in terms of bringing more people into the political process by making the system easier and more inclusive. Uh, and uh, Senator Mitch McConnell has just blocked it. He's refused to bring it to a vote or even have any debate. To me, that's really anti-democracy, and and that's just as concerning. And of course, you know, you have the president um, tweeting out the latest conspiracies. Just uh, I just saw a tweet about promoting voter ID laws, uh, which you know are just do nothing positive for democracy. Um, and uh, actually went on a kind of a Twitter rant after I saw that to explain why uh, strict photo identification laws don't root out any actual fraud that exists in our system, uh, but do disenfranchise valid voters. Uh, and so you have, you know, these people in charge who are unwilling to move forward with what actually works, what's proven to work. And I think that's concerning as well. What can you imagine Senator McConnell's thoughts are about this and about not uh, bringing it uh, to the forefront? You know, I haven't spoken with him, um, uh, but I imagine he thinks that most of these uh these policies would improve turnout, particularly among Democratic voters. Um, that's sort of a standard fear, I guess, uh, is that when we make things easier, then more Democrats will vote, and that might mean it would harm Republicans. You know, I would encourage the senator to look at it not from a partisan lens, but from a pro-democracy lens. You know, let's let ideas and candidates win the day and not election rules. And yet too often we have a system now in which election rules often do dictate the outcome. Um, you know, Senator, I'd ask him, are you really afraid of the voters? Are you afraid of the voters that much that you're unwilling to even debate policies that are working in both so-called red and so-called blue states? You know, you talk about automatic voter registration, which is implemented in a handful of uh, reliably so-called red states or universal vote by mail, which is implemented in Utah uh, and I don't think has had any necessarily partisan effects, but it has improved the system and improved turnout. I'm talking with Professor Joshua Douglas of the University of Kentucky College of Law, who teaches and researches election laws. His new book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Uh, tell me uh, another story. Uh, tell me one about Allison Smith. Yeah, so this has to do with campaign finance reform and the push for public financing. And you know, money talks in our elections, uh, unfortunately, and big money is uh, such a big influence. And Allison Smith was kind of fed up. Well, in fact, she it started, she was a um, stay-at-home mom in Maine, and uh, she got involved with the League of Women Voters. She actually had previously lived in Connecticut and was involved there about uh, some environmental issues. And she moved to Maine, and her Connecticut friends bought her a membership to the League. And right after she moved, the League contacted her and said, you know, are you willing to work on public financing issues? And she said, sure, why not? I think this is just as important. 
Um, so she became, in many ways, a public spokesperson for uh, Maine's push to adopt a public financing system where you candidates agree to a certain limit on the amount of money they'll raise or they'll spend, and they receive money from the government uh, to use for their campaign. Uh, so she, you know advocated for she gathered signatures she even went on tv to the local television stations which she told me was pretty bizarre because she didn't even own a television at the time uh and she said you know and, and don't they want someone who knows a little bit more about campaign finance or elections and and they said no actually we want everyday people to to demonstrate and explain why public financing can actually help and improve the system. And it did get passed in Maine, and she's worked on this now for a number of years, uh, a couple different iterations. Uh, and, and public financing works. And the reason is because it opens the door for people who are not wealthy or don't have wealthy interest or backers to run for office. And that's what we've seen in Maine is that you know, kind of everyday Americans, people whose jobs are you know restaurant workers or teachers, have run for office in Maine and won because they've had the ability to go up against even people who are financing their campaigns with their own pockets um, and and get their message out. Uh, and it works in the legislature too. I spoke with a woman uh, named Hannah Pingree who was the Speaker of the House in Maine for a couple of years. And uh, she told me about how there was a, a consumer product safety bill that the legislature was considering, and um, the, a bunch of lobbyists came to Maine to try to influence them, and the legislature basically said, you know, we don't want to talk to you. We don't really care what you think, being from out of state. We want to hear from our constituents. And so it makes the ability for legislators to not just have to dial for dollars and spend all their time fundraising for the next election, but actually talk to their constituents. And so, you know, Allison Smith understood this um, and she said, you know, I I can do something about it. And thanks to her efforts, as well as many others, uh, they pass it in Maine and it's proven to really work. You have a a chapter um, which is uh, close to the end. Uh, I'm going to ask you when you wrote this too, but uh, it, it's how to combat fake news. And, you know, it could almost be, and it, it, it is part of the college course that I teach. And I'm, I think uh, that, that journalism uh, should be taught with this uh, caveat, whether it's uh, something fortunate or unfortunate. That's, that's the world that uh, young people live in today, that we all live in today. Uh, but especially and, you know, I, it's also, it's just not, as I'm talking here, it's not just for kids. I mean, it's for all of us to understand exactly uh, what is it and, and how you define it and, and how you seek out um, the truth instead of relying on fake news. So tell me about your chapter entitled How to Combat Fake News. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you started with a question about how to define what is fake news because, you know, let me let me start that by saying what fake news is not, which is fake news is not just what goes against the current politicians in power. Uh, fake news is not something that's just you know I don't like what they said about me, which unfortunately uh, you know our president and and others have started defining and using that term fake news to you know, basically explain away any kind of negative media coverage of them. Fake news is really what Russia engaged in, which is writing and promulgating news story or stories that look like news that are actually not true, that uh, do not tell facts. Um, and so how do you combat fake news? You know, I don't have the magic answer um, because I think it's a very difficult problem, but I think one 
starting place is to trust and support local journalism. You know, local journalism, unfortunately, is uh, is under peril in our country as the newsrooms have so much less uh, money, um, a much smaller budgets, um, and uh, they're being bought up by these large companies. And, you know, I speak with, I have the pleasure of speaking with local reporters pretty often, given that I study voting rights, and I've never found one of them to be overtly or even implicitly biased. Uh, well, I mean, obviously I can't tell if they're implicitly biased, um, but certainly not explicitly biased. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just trying to get the news out there, mm -hmm. trying to tell a balanced story. And uh, that's been true for basically every single local journalist I've encountered. Uh, the problem is that they, uh, you know, don't have the resources they need because we don't support them enough with our dollars, with our subscriptions, with our clicks on their websites. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a small thing, but we can, you know, support our local journalism, um, you know, through through subscriptions and and give them the space in which they can actually demonstrate what the truth is. And the second thing is is to look skeptically at a story that you know that you. Know, Question, does this really seem like it's coming from uh, a good source? You know, if it's coming from a, a well-known newspaper, it probably is. If it's coming from a website you've never heard of, maybe not. Uh, and I think we all have a responsibility to, you know, not share that story that you don't know where the source is from. Well, I think there's one other step that uh, everyone can take, and and uh, that is to really be, it, it's it's tougher to be a, a a great news consumer these days. Um, a great news consumer is one that goes uh, beyond just accepting something and either not looking at the source or passing it all on. Um, I think whether you're a young person studying journalism in um, the university level or uh, whether you're uh, a daily consumer uh, that is retired and wants to keep up on the latest from Medicare, you have to work at it. You have to be sure you're first sourcing and, and uh, try to go to the original source of those stories uh, and not just accept anything that comes across uh, social media. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, you, we started this conversation um, with uh, some questions that you were asking yourself on a, a hot summer day a couple of years ago, maybe? Last summer was it? when I, oh, I wrote, the, wrote the epilogue. Yeah, because the book came out in April. Yeah. And so I, I had my final manuscript was due to the publisher last September. So, this, so the, the kids were actually, seven and three. Are they still seven and three? They're now they? eight and four. <laughs> eight and yeah. four. Uh, my mind can't help but wonder uh, to a fundamental thought, what kind of society are we leaving them? What will they think of our democracy when they become voters? So in your epilogue and in your thoughts since then, how did you answer that question? I think it's not answerable yet um, because there's you know two paths or multiple paths that we could take with our democracy when it comes to creating an inclusive uh, system. So you know, are we going to still have a system in which, turnout is woefully low and you know again i don't celebrate 50 percent turnout in a midterm election even though it was higher than in decades prior when half the pe people didn't show up um i don't think it's a good thing that money drives our system as the the way it does we had, we didn't uh, talk about redistricting and gerrymandering but that's a huge problem a structural problem uh the u.s supreme court just said that it's not going to intervene uh we've we've had you know i'm an optimist so we have some good stories of the citizens themselves 
uh, voting to adopt independent redistricting commissions in places like Michigan. Uh, you know, so are we going to continue those progresses? Or when they become voters, you know, my daughter will, will be able to vote for the first time in 10 years. Are we going to have any meaningful changes? And, and my hope is that the book helps to pave a path for those meaningful changes. So, you know, I wrote those words just last, uh, the end of last summer as I was finishing the manuscript. And there's still open questions for me um, because I don't know if we're going to get to a place that I think we can truly be proud of. That's not to say that I'm not proud of our democracy. I think America has the greatest democracy in the nation, but it certainly could be a whole lot better. Um, and, and, you know, these are things that I hope we'll see and we'll achieve in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Josh Douglas is the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. And uh, Professor Douglas will be our guest at the Kentucky uh, Book Fair on Saturday, November 16th, uh, as a part of our Kentucky Book Festival, November 10th through the 16th. And we will look forward to uh, having him there and, and having a lot of people stop by and continue. Uh, I'll just bet you uh, on November the 16th, there will still be a lot to talk about. There seems to be no lack of... Uh, concern or urgency or real interest in uh, in voting and we'll just have to wait and see what happens gosh and we'll have to have you back sometime I, I, you've probably got some pretty uh, interesting thoughts on the US Supreme Court and the uh, the members there and and again uh, the credit that our our very own uh, Senator McConnell uh, aforementioned uh, has in uh, really remaking the court uh, for what some think to be a generation? I, I certainly have thoughts. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll do that. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.